Lots of righteousness tends to belong. So keep your love on, on. Welcome to the Get Your Love On podcast. This show is dedicated to the family of faith around the globe. In each episode, we learn how to simply walk with God in all his awesome love, incredible power, and authority. It's straightforward, and it's straight from the word. We have free resources for you at getyourloveon.org. That includes free Bible studies and an amazing free video series, all there to answer your questions, build your faith, and of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us by going to getyourloveon.org. We have an amazing episode here, so let's go. Let it shine bright, 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 keep your love. The message today, I chose to title it, An Introduction to the Body of Christ. Basically what the Lord gave me here was just that. If you're new to the body of Christ, or you've been around for a while and maybe need a refresher or a reminder of what it actually means to be part of the body of Christ, what the expectations are, this uh, gives a good outline and a good basis of where to start. It is just an introduction. To start off, we'll go to John 13. Now in John 13, we have one of the most beautiful illustrations of the Lord's nature, and it was communicated to us without saying a word. Start right here in verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So right off here, we see several key things here about the Lord's nature. He didn't just love his spiritual brethren. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end of the work that God had sent him here to do, because he knew he was about to depart and go back to the Father. And he loved them to the end of himself as a flesh and blood man, because he also knew he was going to go to that cross and die on it. So to the end, that means, in the Greek, means to the limit, to the uttermost. So this is not just, I love you, and that's it. There's there's almost an extremeness to it. It's to the absolute extremity that we can. Everything, all our being. As the Lord's command is, love thy neighbor as thyself. So it's everything we've got in us, Aside from the Lord being the first and foremost in our hearts and in our minds. That's how much we love our brother. Now, the Lord did this, loving his brethren to the end, knowing what he was about to undergo. He knew his hour was upon him. He knew what he would have to endure. He knew what he would have to overcome for the salvation of us all. So there's a very large heart here knowing what he had to endure and still loving his disciples in it. He also did this knowing what was sitting at the table with him. Because it says that the devil had now put that betrayal into the heart of Judas Iscariot. That traitor was sitting there at the table with him, breaking bread. And yet he still loved his disciples, even with that opposition right there with him. So it's quite a picture here that Jesus was facing with his eyes wide open. He wasn't missing a beat. But he also knew who and what he was and what he had from his father 
and he responded accordingly. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, there's actually a lot going on in these last two verses, verses four and five. I'm going to expound on it a little bit. There's a figure here that the Lord was laying out for all of us. So what does he do? He rises from supper, first thing. In other words, there's a transition here from being served to serving. Then he lays aside his garments. In other words, he puts off what is comfortable or fashionable and girds himself with a towel. He puts on what is not comfortable or not fashionable for the purpose of getting a job done. Just a linen rag. So that's what a towel is, just a linen rag. I kind of looked at this a little deeper in the Greek. He said he girded himself with it. Now, on the surface, that means to, you know, put it on as an item of clothing. But the actual Greek word means to gird tightly. In other words, to bind about as with a belt, but to do it tightly. In other words, that towel was not put on loosely. It was not put on carelessly. It was done in a manner where he was committing himself to it. That thing was tied on, tight. He had a job to do, and the towel wasn't coming off until the job was fully completed. There's a commitment there. Then he pours that water into a basin. We understand that the water is a type of the word. This is a type, or a figure, of him delivering the word of God to wash the mind. And then what does he do with that water? He washes the disciples' feet. He targets the lowest, the basest, and the dirtiest part, kneeling down and bowing over to do so. So when you've got someone sitting there and you're, you've got a basin of water and you're washing their feet, you're not just kneeling down in front of them. You actually have to bend right over and get down there to you know, access those feet and wash them in that basin that's sitting there on the floor. It's almost like a position of prostration, but not quite. So there's a figure of great humility involved here, kneeling down before that other one. And then once they're washed, he wipes them with the towel. In other words, what's been put on and committed to, it's used and given for the benefit of others rather than for oneself. That towel wasn't just there for him to clothe himself. It was there to dry the disciples' feet. It was for their benefit. So I'll read these two verses again with those things in mind. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Now, I want to give a little background here. 
In those times, this is back during the Roman Empire, about 2,000 some years ago, more or less. In those times, the average person's mode of transportation was on foot. And they were in the, you know, that Mediterranean region where it was quite warm. So they had open sandals, generally is what they wore on their feet. And there's no public sanitation to speak of. That meant most people's feet would have gotten very dirty during the course of the day. Between the dust and the dirt and the mud, and the camel dung laying around, anything, any offal that's in the streets, anything that's out there. And get on your feet and your feet would get very dirty. So it was common courtesy to offer a guest water to wash their feet in. They came into your home. And in particular, having someone wash another person's feet would have been considered a menial chore that was fit only to be done by slaves, the lowest class in that society. So having his lord and master kneel down and wash his feet, that would have been quite a shock to Peter. In the natural, it's kind of completely out of order. Not something a lord and master would do, that's something a slave would do. So Peter says, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. See, Jesus understood where Peter's level of spiritual understanding was at this time. He also knew that one day Peter would remember this lesson and gain the understanding of it. See, right now Peter was perceiving things with his natural mind. You know, how the natural order in the world was. The Lord was doing something by the Spirit here. And in process of time, he knew Peter would eventually get it. So the Lord tells him, you know, you don't know what I'm doing here, but you will know. And Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. And he's quite insistent on his position. But he was viewing things with that natural mind, and he was reacting accordingly. This is a big difference between young unconverted Peter and old converted Peter. This here was young unconverted Peter. It didn't have the infilling of the Holy Ghost, didn't have the, that full experience yet. And so there's kind of a, a bit of a retort here with what the Lord is saying and doing. But look how Jesus handled it. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. So Jesus understood his disciple. And rather than getting angry with him or despising him, the Lord just told him the truth. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me because there's a spiritual thing I'm doing here. You have to partake in it. And the other thing the Lord did here in telling Peter the truth, the way he did it, he actually appealed to Peter's heart. Because even with all the surface stuff, the inexperience and all that, he knew what was at the core of the man, what was really down in the, in the heart of him. He knew Peter did love him and would follow him till the end of his days after going a certain course. So he appealed to his heart. And what did Simon Peter respond with? Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
So there's this instant and complete reversal of opinion. He just went from one side all the way to the other, just like that. So there, you know, there's a youthful zeal and there's an impulsiveness there. Yeah, just one side to the other. And there, there's that youth. But you can see what was really at Peter's core. He wanted to be with the Lord and right there where he was supposed to be with the Lord. And so regardless of what his natural mind was telling him, when the Lord said, I mean, you can't have any part of me unless you partake of this, he instantly lined up, said, okay. But you know, you see how he just kind of went, you know, even farther, oh, not just my feet, but my hands and my head too. It's like, let's just carry it to the fullest extreme we can. Yeah, there's that high zeal. It's good to be zealous, but it does have to be tempered out too. So we see what's at Peter's core. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. Now, that's kind of a funny statement to make, reading it in the English here. But if you dig into the Greek words here in this verse, there's actually two different words for the word wash. The first word washed, he says, he that is washed, that actually refers to someone bathing their whole body, washing their whole body. Whereas washing your feet refers specifically to washing the extremities, your hands or your feet or your face. So basically what the Lord was saying here in verse 10 was, if your whole body has been washed and your feet get dirty, you do not need to wash your whole body again, but only your feet. Because that's the only part that actually needs it. Now, those feet, those are a spiritual figure for the parts that are exposed to and soiled by the rudiments of the world. You know, they're, they're walking around in that natural realm. Those feet are what are touching the ground. That's what's exposed to the rudiments of the world and you know, gets contaminated by it. There's a spiritual figure here for us, too. You know, we're in this world and we do have to interact with this world to a certain extent, just even being here. But when we interact with the world, there is a residue of that interaction that's left in our mind, which needs to be washed away by the word. That's why we have to stay prayed up, have to stay in our word, stay paid up, prayed up and ready to go up, as Brother Bob used to say. And it has to be washed away by the word to keep our mind clean. Because otherwise, those interactions, if they, they're left in our mind, that can influence us spiritually. And that can get us off track with the Lord. So we have to keep our mind clean. Now, the thing about this is the more we interact with the world, the more dirt, the more mud, the more camel dung gets on us. You know, the more we're out there interacting in that sphere. That takes more word to wash it away. It's better, if you can, to minimize that interaction and keep yourself built up. But everyone has their appointed place and course they have to go. Then Jesus says this, and you are clean, but not all. Speaking to his disciples. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. See, Judas was there too. Washing the disciples' feet included Judas Iscariot too. 
He kneeled down before that one and washed his feet as well. That's quite something. How much love does that take? Part of it was an example to the other disciples too. Just to abide with what you have before the Lord and not get sidetracked or looking sideways. Because that Judas Iscariot's course that he went, that was appointed by God. Someone had to fill that role and that was the man God chose to do it. It's kind of like that parable the Lord told about the wheat and the tares growing up together. If you try to pull those tares up while the wheat's still growing, you can uproot the wheat with it. He said, you have to let them grow up together. And then when the time of harvest comes, it all gets cut down and then you separate it out after. That's, that's part of what he was doing here. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you? You call me master and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So there is our commandment from the Lord as the members of the body of Christ. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Now in doing this, this also includes everything that the Lord did in preparing to wash the disciples' feet. So it's verses 4 and 5 again. We rise from supper. We transition from being served to serving. We lay aside our garments. We put off what is comfortable, what is fashionable. We gird ourselves with a towel. We put on what is not comfortable or not fashionable for the purpose of getting a spiritual job done. And we don't put it on loosely or carelessly but we're committing ourselves to it. Kind of like what the Lord said about uh, putting your hand to the plow. That he that putteth his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. My soul shall have no pleasure in him. Because yeah, going back to those rudiments that we came out of, when we're committed to what the Lord has given us to do, we're committed to it. We, we keep going forward in it and we're not careless about it. We pour out that water. We deliver the word of God to one another to wash the mind, and our mind is our soul. We wash one another's soul, souls with the word. And that's not just through our speech, but it's also through our actions, our general behavior with one another. And in pouring that water out, he's very specific here. We pour it out into a basin. In other words, we don't pour water out on the ground to wash someone. When you pour water out on the ground, what happens? You just get mud. In other words, we don't mix the water of the word with the natural reasonings of the world or the mind of the world. It has to be pure. It has to be the word. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot um, if there's a religious spirit involved. I mean, it happens all the time in, you know, four square churches as they're referred to sometimes. They're doing things by the natural mind and the natural interpretation of the scripture rather than by the spirit. The Lord doesn't want us to do that. So we have the appropriate means of delivery. We not only don't mix it with the world, we also use the proper way of 
delivering the word to a soul when they need it. We don't use a thimble where it's just a, you know, a little bit and that's it. I mean, if you need to wash someone's feet and you just have like a little thimble and an eyedropper, how effective is that? It's not effective. No. It has, you, have, you need that basin. Get those feet in there and actually wash them off. And at the same time, we don't go in there with a the fire hose either and just blast them away because you'll bowl them over and knock them right out the door. See, there's a, there's a proper means of delivery. Yeah. That's part of love and humility as well, is knowing uh, what's appropriate for each soul and how to handle them. And then what do we target? We wash the disciples' feet. We target what's been affected by interaction with the world. You know, somebody's on point in one thing, but they're missing on something else. We don't target the thing that they're doing right. We target the thing that's not being done right. That's what we address and that's what we clean up. And how do we do it? We're kneeling down and bowing over as the Lord did. We use that come in that great humility and that love for that soul. It's not just a person standing in front of us. There's a soul that is eternal, that can face eternal destruction or can face eternal glory, depending on how we handle them and how they respond. There is a fearfulness, of a godly fearfulness in doing that. We have to have a great humility so that we're lining up with the Lord's mind on things and not going off half-cocked in our own mind. Now, the thing about humility, that does not mean we have to be a doormat for anything that's not of the Lord. Humility and power are not mutually exclusive. How powerful is this illustration the Lord gave us, showing us how we're to entreat one another? It's very powerful, and yet there was great humility here. That humility is extended to that human soul that God shaped for his own pleasure and his own purposes. That humility is not extended to evil spirits that may be afflicting that human soul. We take power and authority over those things, you know, in the way the Lord leads us to do it. Sometimes it's that soft word that breaks the bone, as the old proverb says. Mm -hmm. The power is in the word, in the word of God, not in and of ourselves. That's the key, is using the word to minister to the soul, human soul. So we wash the disciples' feet, and then we wipe them with that towel. In other words, what we put on, what we commit ourselves to, according to the Lord's leading, that's used and given for the benefit of others rather than for ourselves. It's for them. It's not for us. It's for them. It's for that soul in front of us. The Lord laid aside a lot of things to come here and walk on this earth for three and a half years, more or less, to teach us his ways and then go to the cross and die for us, be sacrificed for us. And he laid a lot of things aside to do that. Now, likewise, when we're entering into this walk with the Lord, each of us is going to have our own course to follow. And there's going to be things we're going to have to lay aside as well. And that can be difficult on the flesh. You know, there can be poles in the heart that may resist that. 
But the thing to keep in mind is if you back up to verse 12 and look at it again, he says, after he had washed their feet and taken his garments and was set down again, then he spoke to them. In other words, everything he laid aside there to do that work of washing the feet, he took it all back up again. In other words, what he laid aside was only temporary. Then he took it all back up again. Likewise, everything we may have to lay aside in this life to do the Lord's will, it is only temporary. Why? Because it's only this, this life is temporary. We do the Lord's will, we enter into his glory, we get everything back again. And you know, the Lord actually promised that whatever we leave for his sake does come back to us even in this life. It may not be exactly in the same manner as what we've left, but it will come back to us in this life and in the next. It's temporary, what we lay aside. Now, how does what we have to lay aside compare to what the Lord laid aside? When he laid aside his garments, there was a spiritual figure there as well in a bigger picture. He willingly laid aside his glorified body and his glorified estate that he had with the Father to come down here to planet Earth and put on the form of a man. He girded himself with that towel. That's a figure for putting on that fleshly body that sweats, that bleeds, that hurts, feels everything. Mm -hmm. That's very slow, very heavy. Yeah. So that's what, he, that's what he laid aside and that's what he put on for us. And even in that, he gave the towel too in the end. Even that was given, put on the cross for our sakes. So anything we may have to lay aside ourselves in this life for the benefit of the body, I mean, how does it compare to what he laid aside? Yeah. And he took it all up again. Likewise, we also have that assurance. We stick with it. We'll take it all up again too. And more so. Greater and beyond anything we lose. Like Paul said, he said, I count those things but dung that I may win Christ. Then he had it all, he had it made in the natural. And he put it all aside to do the work of the Lord. Hmm. Gave everything. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's just a few chapters over in John 15, verse 13. We'll continue here in verse 15. The Lord says to his disciples, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And more than anything, he wants us to have his huge capacity to love. To love the Father and to love each other. Yeah. And not just, you know, say it, but to love each other in deed and in truth. In other words, demonstrating it and doing it sincerely. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. So even as we have been sent into the world to do the will of the Lord in loving one another, so also was he himself sent into the world to do the will of his Father 
by loving each of us. So he set the pattern for us, and we're to follow it. If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Now that word happy means supremely blessed in this life and in the next life. But there is a qualifier there. It says, if you do them. It's not enough just to know what the Lord's will is for us. We actually have to do it too. Yeah. We have the example. We know of the example. But we also have to do the example. Follow it. And he continues here again. He says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. He's speaking of Judas Iscariot again. Think about Judas. He had all the same teachings and examples that the other disciples did. He knew, but he didn't do. He had his feet washed, same as the other disciples. He was washed, but he didn't stay clean, spiritually speaking. That's why he went out and did what he did. He didn't love in deed and in truth. It was only a pretense. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. The scriptures, you know, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they spoke of his passion. And, you know, the sacrifice you would have to make and the things you would have to undergo. And the Lord here, he was preparing for the disciples for what was about to happen. That passion of the Christ was about to play out. When he's talking to them here, uh, this is the Last Supper that he's conversing with them here. In a few minutes after this, he was going to go out and make his way down to Gethsemane, where he was going to, Judas was going to give him that kiss, and the scribes and Pharisees were going to take him away. So he's telling them now, this is about to play out. So I'm, I'm letting you know, so you'll understand. And then he says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. So we are not only instructed to wash one another's feet. We are also instructed here to allow ourselves to be washed through whichever vessel the Lord chooses. We don't just wash one another's feet. We also allow our brothers and sisters in the Lord to wash our feet as well. It is a two-way street here. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 12. I will start here in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now, Paul laid out here quite a picture for us. Kind of used the natural to explain the spiritual in a very good way. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many, our one body, so also is Christ. If we look at how God designed the human body, you know, this physical body that, we, that we're here in, if we look at that and how each part performs a function for the benefit of the rest of the body, we can begin to see how the Christian church as a whole is expected to function. See, the natural reflects the spiritual. Everything God made in the natural is a reflection 
of things in the spiritual. He's actually, he actually expresses his own personality in kind of a, an allegory here in this plane of existence. So we look at this human body and we see a picture of the church. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Kind of a type of that blood circulating through the whole body. Yeah, that's a, a figure for the spirit. Each part of that body is fed, healed, and protected by what is supplied to it by the rest of the body through that bloodstream. Yeah. And so in the church, each member is fed, healed, and protected by what the other members supply. That applies spiritually first, but it can also apply physically, financially, and emotionally as well. Whatever means God asks us to minister to one another at any given time. Yeah. Sometimes it's just that hug and that smile that's needed to lift that heart on a given day. And sometimes it may be, you know, completely laying aside anything and everything that we're doing to take up another's cause. What is what God require of us at any given time? For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? No, of course not. Each one has its part to play. And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Of course not. The ear and the eye have two completely different functions. Both are very necessary. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Yeah, that's the point Paul is making here. Each member is different because they have a different placement and a different function within the body. It's not that any member is any better or any worse than the others. They are there in the body because God put them there. Verse 18, but now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. Yeah, every one of us is here because God put us here. We each have a role to play. And if they were all one member, where were the body? Yeah. If everybody was the same, um, then you don't have a body. You've just got a bunch of clones. But now are they many members, yet but one body. Now he mentions this, this phrase, one body, repeatedly over and over in these, these first few verses here. One body. In other words, there must be a unity of purpose among the members of the body in order for the whole body to function effectively. If there is a task that needs to be done, the different members involved in that task must be coordinated and cooperating in order to do it. I'll give you a natural example, driving a car. Every body part involved in that operation has to be coordinated with the others. You can have your hands on the steering wheel, you can have your foot pushing the gas and the brake and whatever, but if your eyes are closed, how well is that gonna work? It doesn't work, yeah. You can have your eyes open, you can be steering and changing gears and everything, but if your foot's not pushing the gas pedal, where are you gonna go? Again, nowhere. 
there has to be a coordination between the different parts of the body. So there's a, there's, there has to be a unified purpose and they all have to work together. Yeah, to, for that car to get where it's going in the right way. It's the same in the spirit in the body of Christ. Yeah, the elder said amen. He knows. See, the Lord, he's put this body here for us to work together, to war a spiritual warfare against those powers of darkness together. We have a unified stand, that line of soldiers linked arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, standing against the wickedness of this world. You even look at a flock of sheep. When a predator comes to try and grab a lamb or something like that, those sheep, they huddle together in a circle, facing outwards with the young ones in the middle and the, old, the older, experienced, strong ones on the outside, protecting them. But they're shoulder to shoulder so that the predator from the outside can't get in because every which way it comes from, it's got horns in its face. But those sheep have to be shoulder to shoulder. If there's a gap or one of them's off doing its own thing, then that predator can slip in and grab something. But there has to be a unified purpose for the body to be effective. See, and the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Again, yeah. You're driving that car and you're, you think you don't need hands and just eyes to drive that thing. Well, you're going to have trouble driving that thing because those hands turn that steering wheel. The eye can't turn the steering wheel. The hands have to do it. Different purpose, different function. Yeah. Now, even the members that are not directly involved in a task still have their own work to do in supporting those that are. You know, even when you're, you're driving that car with your hands and your feet and your eyes and your brain, hopefully you're using your brain when you're driving. A little dry humor there. Anyway, even when you're driving that car, you still have other body parts that are doing digestion of food, your breathing, your circulation. Those things are supportive to what these, the other body parts are doing. I mean, you stop breathing, your heart stops beating, how long do you think you can drive that car for? No, not very long. Mm -hmm. And nay, much more of those members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, are necessary. Now, there's a couple of points I, I'd like to share here. How physically weak are our internal organs? You know, those ones that do the digestion, the breathing, the heartbeat. Yeah. They're, those things are protected. They're inside the body. They're behind the rib cages and in, in the interior of the body. Because physically, they're quite fragile. Yeah. Yet, how necessary are those organs? Extremely necessary. We can't survive without them. So physically, they're feeble. But he also, Paul also says they seem feeble. I mean, the heart in particular is actually a very tough organ. It's got to beat every second of every day for our entire life. I actually sat down and crunched the numbers. You make it to 95, that's 3 billion heartbeats. If you average it out to once a second. Yeah. 3 billion, that's 3 and 9 zeros. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. And that thing keeps going and going and going and going and going. Yeah. 
may seem feeble. It's tucked inside there, protected from the exterior. But it keeps going and going and going and going and going. Yeah. But again, it's a critical organ, but it still needs the rest of the body. Still needs the lungs to supply the oxygen. Still needs the, those bowels to digest the food, provide the energy. Mm -hmm. And that's the other point here. To truly be part of the body, we need other parts to feed into. Um, every part is not just a part of one unto itself. You don't have a body of one. That's just an individual. When you have a body, each part is fed and nourished by the rest of the body, but each part also contributes and feeds into the body as well. It's a two-way street. Yeah. And we need to feed into one another in order to be part of the body. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, Upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Now this here in verse 23, this is the example the Lord set for us in washing the disciples' feet. In a ministry to ministers, we cannot have a ministry or be ministers without having someone to minister to. There's a need those ones that are needy are absolutely necessary. We need someone to pour into. Yeah. Now, when Paul's speaking of honor and comeliness, what's he talking about? Yeah. Well, honor is a value. These parts we think to be less valuable, we bestow more value on them because they've given us something to minister to. Those things that we, the comeliness, comely means well-formed. So if we see things that don't seem very well-formed, they do have a better form if we're looking at it with God's eyes. See, God dwells in a place completely outside of our earthly concepts of space and time. Everything that the scientists have figured out and, you know, how we view the universe and all that. God dwells completely outside of that. He sees the finished product of every soul. Where they're going to end up. Whereas here in this earthly realm, we see the starting material and the development of those souls. He sees the vessel. We see the clay. He sees the finished product. We see the potter's wheel and the operation of that lump getting formed. Yeah. We become effective ministers when we can see the value that God places on a soul and how God is forming them rather than devaluing and dismissing them out of our own estimation of them. We all have things that we go through. We all have things to learn and overcome. That does not mean that if our brother or sister is struggling, that we devalue them or dismiss them or say that they're not good for anything that the Lord might have them do. We see what God can do with them. And we see how God shapes them. And as long as that soul is willing to allow God to shape them, we stick with it. We stick with them and keep praying for them and loving them and helping them where we can. If you look at Saul, 
before he became Paul? I mean, there's a prime example right there. Ananias had to go and pray over Saul in Damascus after he got knocked off his high horse. And the Lord told him, you're going to go to this man and you're going to pray over him. And Ananias, he knew Saul's reputation that he was making havoc of the church. And he said, you know, Lord, is this, this is the same man that's done all these horrible things to the Christian people. And you want me to go pray for him? And the Lord said, no, he's a chosen vessel unto me. So how much love did that take? Now, what kind of vantage point did Ananias have to have to go to that enemy of the church, lay hands on him, pray over him? Yeah. Well, he did it. And we see what came out of that. Yeah. Completely overturned a soul from the way of destruction to the way of construction. He went from Saul, the destroyer of the church, to Paul, the builder of the church. Yeah. See, God saw the finished product. Ananias had got to that point where he could see what the Lord was doing. That's where each of us needs to be as well, is have that large vantage point and that large heart, the Lord's heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for our comely parts have no need. Now, those comely parts, that's what's been shaped, shaped by the Lord, formed by the Lord, and they're where they need to be. They don't have that need to be worked and worked and worked like they were in the past or the way others may need to be now because they've already been worked and shaped. Though I will say that shaping does continue right to our very last breath and our last heartbeat. We still have to maintain that form that God has given us. But God hath tempered or combined the body together having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. Yeah. If any one of us falls short of where we should be spiritually, God honors us or demonstrates the value we have to him by giving us ministers to help us get to where we need to be. That's the honor God bestows upon each of us. And those ministers, that's primarily spiritually, spiritual deliverance, but it can also apply physically, financially, and emotionally as well. Yeah. Many times, you know, I've been ministered to in different ways other than spiritually by different ones. Physical helps, financial helps, emotional helps, you know, even just lifting that heart. That's a ministry in itself. And I know each of us have experienced these things as well. That is what we are to do for one another. And why is this so important? Verse 25 that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Now that word schism means a split or a gap. In other words, a division in the body. And the root word of that means to split or sever, to break, divide, open, to rend, which means to tear apart or tear off forcibly. It's a pretty bad picture there. The Lord said, we're to have this care and this love for one another to prevent this from happening. If there is one thing the devil is working on overtime right now, it is in trying to nullify this verse. The devil is continually trying to sow division within the body of Christ. 
one way or another. Trying to work someone's mind, get people offended at each other, mm -hmm. get people staying away and avoiding one another. He's trying to destroy the love and care we have for one another. Yeah. That's, what, that's what the devil tries to do because he knows if the body of Christ is unified and standing together, he can't stand against it. He has no power whatsoever. Yeah. But if he can get husband against wife, if he can get daughter against mother, if he can get brother against brother or brother against sister, yeah, if he can drive a wedge in there, if he can get us fighting one another, then we're not fighting him. And Satan knows this, and he'll try what he can to destroy that unity. If Satan can get us fighting each other, then we're not fighting him. That's the bottom line there. So what do we do? Whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. There's the body. Will one member be honored? All the members rejoice with it. There's the body. It's certainly not the opposite. If one member suffers and another member's rejoicing in that, that's a big problem. If one member's honored and another member's suffering because they're seeing that one get honored, that's a problem. That's not the Lord's mind at all. Yeah. We're one mind and one accord. We suffer with one another and we rejoice with one another in unity. And then Paul writes this in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. And he's writing to the Corinthian church here. He said, now that you have heard me and now that you're doing it, now you are the body of Christ. And each of you are members in particular. I'd like to close in Matthew 25. This is the Lord speaking. He's giving instruction and he's also giving a pretty stern warning for each of us on how we are to conduct ourselves towards one another, especially uh, towards the Holy Ghost. We'll start in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. So there's going to be a sorting out and a dividing out. Now this is the Lord's division, not Satan's division that we talked about earlier. Because the Lord does discriminate between good and evil between righteous and unrighteous. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Now each of these things 
we can do naturally for one another. We can also do it spiritually for one another. Someone's spiritually hungry, they need the word of the Lord to feed their soul. We are to do that. They're thirsty for the, the things of the Lord. They need blessing in their life. Yeah, we're to give that to them. If they're new to the ways of the Lord, but they're, they're, seeking, they're seeking the Lord, we are to give them the way in and help them along, take care of them. Naked and you clothe me. Yeah, we give them the covering of the Lord's love. If there's a slip up or a mistake, that charity covers a multitude of sins. I was sick and you visited me. If there's a, a weakness or a troubling of uh, someone spiritually troubled or been weakened, spiritually sick, we minister unto them. Now, give them the, the word of the Lord and help them heal their soul. They're in prison. They're bound by, by things, bound by spirits. We use the Holy Ghost to deliver them out of it. We do this for our brethren and sisters in the Lord, in the body, and to anyone else that the Lord will send us to. Hmm. And here's why. Verse, we continue in verse 37. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now, he says even the least. And that can be taken in different contexts. Now, someone that's struggling, someone that's new and doesn't know very much. Now, there's different ways of looking at that. But he says, if you've done it to the least of one of these, my brethren, You've done it unto me. Mm -hmm. There's a great blessing there. But there's also a warning here. Verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. And again, these things can apply both naturally and spiritually. So each of us has to be prayed up and knowing the will of the Lord so that we, we're not missing this. Then shall they also answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister unto thee. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So there is quite a sobering statement here, and quite a difference between the two estates here. There are consequences if we don't walk and do as we're supposed to within the body. If we're just taking what we can get for ourselves, 
and not ministering to one another, the Lord does see that. And there are consequences for it. But if we are ministering to one another, we are taking care of one another as the Lord's leading us to do it. You know, we have great reward and great blessing in that as well. So like many of the things the Lord says, it's a two-edged sword. Cuts both ways. So that's an introduction to uh, what the Lord expects of us as members of the body of Christ. And from there, we go into deeper things. We leave off the principles of that foundation and we go on to perfection. That's what the Lord wants for us in the end, is to be perfect as he is perfect and walk in the love that he has and have his care for every soul that he puts in front of us. Mm -hmm. Be the minister and also allow ourselves to be ministered to. So that's all I have for today. I love you. Lord bless you much. Bye for now. What an incredible message that was. Hope it blessed you as much as it blessed me. I feel like I could listen to that about 30,000 more times and get even more out of it each time. The good news is you can go to getyourloveon.org. The podcast is always archived there so you can review that rich rich, incredible message that we were just blessed with. And of course, any and all shows, we also have Bible studies and you can always send your prayer requests. Please go to getyourloveon.org for more information. We'll be back next week to feed your soul. And in the meantime, Lord bless you mightily. It's been a pleasure. Crack yourself a smile or sing a song But I keep my love on Man or woman, man or woman who is so down, try keep your love on, on. Sons and daughters, sons and daughters of the one true God, keep your love on. Keep your love on, child. Let it shine bright, bright, bright. Keep your love on, 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 on Don't let it die, don't let it die, don't let it die, no, no It's a simple message, but that doesn't mean it's wrong I keep my love on If I were you And I'm a simple singer But my heart and mind are strong I keep my love on Yes I do You must dream in color Ask your questions Cause life does not give honorable mentions Thinking more than two dimensions In case your tightrope loses tension I'll be here if ever you need a friend You know I will And I'll be here to To lend a friendly hand So you, so you Can keep your love on child Let it shine bright Bright, bright
Don't let it die, don't let it die, let me 